quick language warning here. Sometimes Alice and I, we have potty mouths and we're working on that. So this is probably best for grown-up listening only. This is Body Shock, a podcast by two newbie parents, me, Alice Fenton, and my co-host Shannon O'Mara. We separate fact from fiction about what having kids does to your body and mind and what you can do about it. Hello and welcome to Body Shock. How are you doing, Alice? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm quite excited about talking about hormones because I don't know anything about them. I have a feeling we're about to get a bit of a biology lesson because hormones are pretty complex. And they do a lot. They control everything in the body, essentially. And in pregnancy, obviously, they play a hugely important role. And then afterwards as well. And not just in the mood swings. Let's speak to our endocrinologist, Chelsea McMahon. Today we're joined by Dr. Chelsea McMahon, an endocrinologist who specialises in endocrine disorders in pregnancy as well as postnatal endocrine disorders. So let's start. First question, pretty broad. Do hormones actually control everything that occurs in our body? That's what I read somewhere. They control a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. So they they really provide uh, an integral role in the way that our bodies function. And certainly if they're not functioning properly, uh, they can cause quite a quite a lot of trouble. Um, there's so many of them as well, and they're all they're very complex in so the way they interact as well. And something I think probably that we should ask, what are signs that you might have a hormonal imbalance after having a baby? Like what, what should people be looking out for? What sorts of symptoms might indicate that maybe they need to go and get a little checkup? Um, I suppose, look, there's, there's just so many of them. Um, I suppose mostly... I mean, the the key players probably after pregnancy are going to be your reproductive hormones. Um, So if you have menstrual irregularities or if your menstrual cycle changes or your menstrual cycle becomes intolerable, that's probably an indicator that you should go and see someone. Um, I think as well uh, the thyroid uh, can be affected by pregnancy. It can be affected in pregnancy and it can certainly uh, do very strange things after pregnancy. So, um, you know, probably I think about 10 to 15% of women... um, We'll get something called postpartum thyroiditis, where their thyroid, um, because of the immune system, we think being suppressed in pregnancy and then allowed to to go back to normal, it can irritate the thyroid, and they can um, they can go uh, overactive with their thyroid. Uh, then they come back down to normal, and then they typically go underactive, and then come back up to normal. Probably in about eighty five percent of cases. Um, so that that can cause a set of different symptoms, and it's it's funny some some women can uh, be you know very dysfunctional with their thyroid and uh, just keep putting it down to the fact that they've just had a baby. So they can come in you know being hyperthyroid, which is basically where their metabolism is running way too quick. So they come in and they've dropped a huge amount of weight, and they're not sleeping, and they're shaking, and they're sweaty, and they all just go, oh, I just thought this was normal. Um, so look, I think it is it is a time of of huge hormonal changes uh, and no one really escapes that I don't think um, but I think you, if you have an irregular menstrual cycle or where you're thinking that um, 
your the way you're feeling or the way you're responding to things is just not normal, I think have a low threshold for going to see someone um, because it's a tough time as it is. Um, and if you do have hormonal uh, imbalances, which I suppose we all kind of do because the, the, the hormones are changing, but if, if, if you do have, you know, pathological hormone imbalances, um, then it, it can just make the situation a whole lot worse. Solid advice. And are the hormones invisible? Like, uh, do they just, I know that's crazy, but do they just travel around in your blood and things? Like, are they just these, like... Or can you see them under a microscope? That's what I mean. I'm wondering whether people Mm. are, like, with a microscope going, look, there they are. There you are. I know. I know. Look, this is someone who didn't do science for the HSC or anything. No, you can't can't see them. Um, So they're, they're kind of tiny, tiny little particles of, you know, either made of um, uh, fat or made of protein that just kind of float around in the blood, uh, you know, kind of secreted from their, from their, you know, their home, home, uh, home organ yeah. and then finding their target, uh, um, target organ or target tissue by binding to a receptor that's specific to them. So fortunately you can't job. see them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I always wanted to. I just wanted to ask that. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for indulging me. What happens to our hormones from pregnancy and into the first year of having a baby? Just like a general overview. I know that's quite big. Yeah. <laughs> a lot that of is a rather big topic, but I'll try and uh, just do a bit of an overview of that. Uh, so obviously, pregnancy is is a, a you know a state where there are huge hormonal changes for a woman. I suppose starting at the very beginning um, would be you know you know. Conception. Uh, so initially, uh, when the egg is fertilised, the first thing that probably happens is that uh, your body starts to, to produce a hormone called beta HCG, and this hormone um, is produced by by what is going to become the placenta, and this is basically preparing a woman's body, letting a woman's body know that there's a new life form that's growing. So initially, uh, the beta HCG will be supporting the production of progesterone and estrogen, which are, are female reproductive hormones, which are in the first trimester, they really uh, surge very, very rapidly. Um, so the beta HCG, is that what it's called? Yes. Is that the hormone that you're testing for in a pregnancy test? Yes, yes. So that's the hormone that's excreted in the urine. You can test for it in the blood. It's detectable in the blood uh, very, very early on in pregnancy um, and can be detected in the urine probably by about two weeks uh, of the pregnancy, um, depending on the sensitivity of the test. Okay, so beta HCG is is the hormone that's initially supporting um, the production of estrogen and progesterone prior to the placenta taking on um, later in the pregnancy. So initially in the first trimester, as I said, you get huge uh, surges of estrogen and progesterone, and these uh, can be thought of as the chief hormones in pregnancy. So they're both vitally important in sustaining the pregnancy. They're the bosses, the hormone They're the bosses, bosses, yeah. There are other hormones, you know, that are involved, but they play probably more minor roles, and it's probably not necessary to get into the nitty-gritty of all those hormones. And which of those two makes you feel so crap in the first trimester? They probably all do. (laughs) So it's probably, you know... They all have their their role, um, uh, but they also do have their downside. Uh, So, I mean, the feeling poorly in the first trimester, whether it be fatigue or nausea or breast tenderness or bloated, all the lovely things about the first trimester, um, is probably a combination of all those hormones. So they probably all contribute in their own way. Probably um, the ones associated with morning sickness is, is probably more beta-HCG uh, and uh, estrogen rather than progesterone. 
going through what the hormones actually do. So estrogen is, is a vital hormone uh, in sustaining a pregnancy. Basically, estrogen uh, is getting the uterus and the placenta ready uh, for the baby. Uh, it's increasing the vascularization uh, to the uterus and also to the placenta, which is going to help, uh, obviously, connect the mother and the baby's blood supply and also provide nutrients to um, to the baby. Estrogen is, is very important in also the development of a lot of the baby's organs. Uh, so it needs to be present in order for the organs to develop appropriately. Progesterone uh, is important for also preparing the uterus. So progesterone is a hormone that allows um, muscles and ligaments to relax. So it's allowing the body to accommodate for the fact that there's something that's going to go really quite large by uh, by the end of the pregnancy. Uh, progesterone is also important uh, because it, it allows the mother's immune system to accept the fact that there's something foreign in there. So as opposed to, I mean, our immune systems are supposed to attack anything that is not our own. Uh, so progesterone basically dumbs down that immune response and allows the body to accept the fact that there is there is a foreign body growing inside. And does that make you more susceptible to other illnesses as yeah, well? Yeah, so, yeah. you know, pregnancy is, is considered, well, should be considered an immunocompromised state, uh, which is why uh, in, in pregnancy... Uh, you know, if you if you look at things like you know flu epidemics, uh, etc., women are considered one of the high risk groups because they do not have the same competency of their immune system because of the process that's going on. Uh, the flip side of that is if, if a woman has an autoimmune condition, um, sometimes you can find that the pregnancy will actually. Uh, dull down the autoimmune response and actually make the autoimmune condition a little bit better in pregnancy. It doesn't always happen, but sometimes you do see that they do improve in pregnancy. Um, unfortunately, usually only to flare again in the postpartum period. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so first trimester, you've got your progesterone, yes. your estrogen. And your beta HCG glad you said yes. that one. I forgot the letters. Um, second trimester, does it change much? Second trimester, you, you tend, I mean, the hormones do tend to, to continue to go up, particularly estrogen and progesterone. These will continue uh, to, to increase right up until the end of pregnancy. Uh, but it's probably not the same rate of increase that you get in the first trimester, which is, you know, probably explains part of the reason why the first trimester can be so difficult is because you do have this rapid change in hormones that the body has to adjust to. By the time you get to the second trimester, uh, the, the the change in hormones is, I suppose, you would say more steady and it's easier, I suppose, for the body to tolerate uh, because it's not rapidly rising like it is in the first trimester. Okay. And what happens to these hormones after you've given birth? After you've given birth, uh, it's, it's another change again. So... Um, Predominantly what happens is you do get a reduction in the hormones, but progesterone, you know, really declines quite quickly. And the decline in progesterone allows for another hormone, which is present in pregnancy, called prolactin, uh, to become uh, a little bit more evident. So prolactin is, is elevated throughout the whole pregnancy. But when you get to the postpartum period and progesterone drops down, the actions of prolactin uh, become more evident. Uh, so prolactin is um, the hormone that allows us to lactate. Uh, so at that stage, that's when um, women will start lactating, or not all women, but most women will start lactating. Um, so you get a decline in progesterone. You still have, um, you know, you still have uh, estrogen that is present, but probably not to the same degree that it is in pregnancy. So in the postpartum period, uh, the two hormones that are really working towards milk production are prolactin and estrogen. 
And is it the drop in progesterone that causes the so-called baby blues in those first they, few days? They think it, it might. Uh, so the, the drop in progesterone they think might be related to uh, the, uh, the baby blues or postnatal depression uh, and the change in the way a woman feels emotionally. But, you know, I mean, those kind of uh, conditions are also very, uh, very complex because there's so many things that are going on at that stage. It's not just hormones. I mean, it's a huge life adjustment. Suddenly, you know, you're pregnant and then you have this, you know, screaming little person who's dependent on you. Uh, there's, you know, extreme sleep deprivation as well. So it's it's not just hormones that are, that are no, you know, no. contributing to a lot of it. I meant more that just those, you know, in the of typically on the third day, I think it is when your milk comes in, everyone seems yeah, to have yeah. a particularly rough yeah, day or yeah. two, or just crying and, and not knowing why you're yeah, crying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it is. I mean, it's it's again, it's another. I mean, some people like to call it as, as the fourth trimester of pregnancy, the postpartum period, uh, because, again, it's it's another huge hormone fluctuation that does occur. But, yeah, look, I think the, you know, progesterone probably does play quite a big role in that. And also, don't you get the crazy surges of the happy the happy hormones, like, straight after birth? Yeah, so yeah. That, so that, things like, thing. yeah, oxytocin so, and, yeah. And, and prolactin probably a little bit as well. So that, that does happen. Okay. Uh, that probably <laughs> we wish that that would last Carry a little on. bit longer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose, think about it, you know, those hormones are probably to make you forget what you've just been through <laughs> and so that you're willing to do it again. Yeah. yeah. Talk us through what happens uh, with the breastfeeding hormones mm-hmm. and then when you get to the period of, of deciding to wean, yes, what happens to your hormones then? Yeah, because I wasn't expecting that. Like I knew obviously you need different hormones to start breastfeeding. But when I stopped, I wasn't expecting really anything. I was like, well, mm. I'll just stop gradually and everything will be bitch. normal. But yeah, I've, I've yeah. 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 definitely experienced that. <laughs> not you, not you specifically. I mean, <laughs> no, I was. as a general thing. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so so what's happening uh, with breastfeeding is is, is obviously um, prolactin and estrogen are required to sustain breastfeeding. Uh, but the body is getting a lot of cues uh, uh, from uh, the the environment in order to continue secretion of prolactin. So uh, things like babies crying uh, will, will um, cause a surge of prolactin and also nipple stimulation. Um, so, you know, in the non-pregnant state, you can see people with high prolactin levels um, in response to, to nipple stimulation. So it's, it's one thing that you do need to tell patients to try and abstain from if you're going to try and get a prolactin level from them. So the baby uh, kind of nuzzling and suckling will be telling the, the, the brain or the pituitary gland to make more prolactin. So prolactin is one of our pituitary hormones. It's made by the posterior pituitary um, and the signals for, for ongoing prolactin secretion are going to be uh, nipple stimulation uh, and also uh, ongoing milk production and also babies crying. Um, so when you're making prolactin, um, often when pe- uh, women are lactating, they will not be getting their menstrual cycle. And so prolactin is a hormone that will switch switch off your menstrual cycle because obviously when you're when you're breastfeeding it's not an optimal time to get pregnant again um, however it is not foolproof uh, and women need to know that they actually can get pregnant whilst mm. they're breastfeeding whether their period is back or not and I have had a couple of patients that have uh, fell, fallen pregnant three months postpartum um, because they haven't realized that they 
do have the potential to be fertile still. So prolactin is, is, is switching off your menstrual cycle, so you're not ovulating uh, usually and you're not getting periods. Um, it's making you uh, continue to make milk. Um, often it can have an impact on your sex drive as well. So women will often say that they, you know, that's not something that they feel like whilst they're, whilst they're lactating. And it may have an impact on weight loss in some women. So, you know, there is, you know, some thoughts that the prolactin may make weight a little bit more difficult uh, to shift. Um, Also, something that's not uh, often thought about um, in the period where you are breastfeeding is that uh, the fact that your prolactin levels are high and you're not actually having a regular menstrual cycle is actually a state of bone loss and it's inevitable and it's unavoidable. So pregnancy and um, breastfeeding are a state where women will be losing bone. And but it, how? How uh, do you lose bone? You lose bone because you're not having uh, the normal uh, surges of, of, of estrogen. So, so your est- bone becomes more brittle then? Yeah, or? yeah. Right. So it's, it's, think about, you know, when women go through menopause and they basically go into abrupt estrogen uh, deprivation, they will lose bone. Uh, so it's it's not quite extreme as extreme as that, but because they are not getting their their regular reproductive hormones, uh, they will be losing bone. You know, I recently went to the doctor and I was measured, and I am a centimetre shorter than I used to be. <laughs> yeah. Is that bone loss? Probably not. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, certainly loss of, of a peak vertical height can indicate Alice uh, is shrinking. bone loss. But, but often what you will find is that a lot of people are, are measured inaccurately. I mean, I okay. certainly thought I was Here's two hoping. centimetres taller than I actually am. Um, that's or, a lot of bone to lose in yeah. a short period of well, time. Well, also though. when you yeah. think about your back, your, your back you've got your vertebra, which the little blocks of bone and in between you have your intervertebral discs. As we get older, those discs get a little uh, um, thinner and also towards the end of the day, you actually will be a little bit shorter as opposed to the morning because you've been lying down, the discs can expand overnight mm, the day and with gravity squashes just you squashes you down. Yes. Sometimes yes. I feel like the day squashes me for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Shorter in the so maybe I was slouching and yeah. squashed by the day. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when you're taking a, a, a history on bone loss on a patient later in life, um, how many children they've had and how long they've breastfed for is, is important questions uh, because yeah, you find that, you know, women who have uh, multiple pregnancies and uh, breastfeed for a prolonged amount of time, it is a risk factor for bone loss in later life. So then when you start to wean, uh, basically you will still be making milk. Um, but in the weaning process, you start to take away a lot of those stimuli that's telling uh, the brain or the pituitary gland to continue making prolactin. And as the prolactin levels start to fall down, that's when the pituitary gland gets a message to try and re, uh, reinstate the menstrual cycle. So the pituitary hormones, LH and FSH, will start to rise again and women will, will start to get their, their menstrual cycle again. So, you know, you can imagine that, that when you are in the process of weaning, again, you have have a huge big change that's happening in your hormones your prolactin levels are dropping down and the body's starting to gear up again to start menstruating so you get one hormone going down and then a whole host of other hormones going up so you know the whole state of pregnancy is just huge fluctuations of different hormones which um you know at many times in the uh, experience can be uh, quite unpleasant so it can affect mood. Let's just use that statement. Yes, yes. I think the whole process can affect mood. Okay. Well, I was going, I want, I'm interested in how much we can blame our hormones for, 
for the mood swings and things because I, because they're kind of in, they're these invisible things that yeah. are just running through the body and kind of magical. Like yes. what you've described yeah. is completely magical and amazing to me. Yes, being a completely non-medical person, it's amazing. But but can we just blame them for? Just being angry fairies. That's what it seems like. (laughs) Look, I think they they do they do need to be held accountable uh, for for influencing us, but um, (laughs) 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 that that you know needs to be taken you know with a grain of salt because you know we um, we it does put us in difficult uh, under difficult circumstances that that. are harder to to tolerate than if we were in a normal hormonal state. Um, even you know, even women's menstrual cycle is is you know impacts them on a monthly basis, like premenstrual syndrome. I mean, think even in the, in the minor fluctuations, how it can make us feel terrible and it can make us feel moody and make us feel emotional. So yes, you certainly can partly blame your hormones. <laughs> I don't think we can fully blame them, but they certainly are <laughs> partly responsible. What about skin? I don't know if I just was imagining this, but I felt like while I was pregnant and breastfeeding, I had fewer wrinkles yes. when, than I do now, essentially. Like when I stopped, I feel like I stopped breastfeeding and I was like, oh, I am ancient. Yeah. Maybe that's that elastic <laughs> is it, thing. Is it related to hormones? It, look, I think, you know, the, the glow of pregnancy that they talk about, um, that that tends to be related to estrogen. So the really high levels of estrogen, it's kind of like um, if you think about teenagers who have bad skin and they get put on the pill um, to fix their skin up, that's because of estrogen. Not only is it um, regulating the fluctuations in their hormones, but it's actually giving them relatively high doses of estrogen. So estrogen can make your skin very nice. It makes your hair grow. It makes your nails grow. can give you that glow in pregnancy. Not all women experience that. Some women will unfortunately experience the opposite where they feel like their skin is terrible. And then it's all ripped away. And then it's all ripped away. So, you know, in the postpartum period, you get a, a decline in your estrogen levels. Um, and eventually, in most women, uh, that will cause uh, kind of a decline in the skin that, that they can notice. So they can sometimes start to get breakouts in the skin or feel that their skin looks less lustrous and plump. And unfortunately as well, there's the hair loss that happens as well. Uh, and that's because of that drop in estrogen. So the hair loss tends to follow the drop in estrogen you know, by probably a couple of months. So sometimes people don't relate it to the fact that that hormone has dropped, uh, but it's just because there's a little bit of a lag. So definitely can. And it doesn't make any difference if you're having a boy or girl in, ta- in terms of the hormones. Like, do you produce more hormones? Because, you know, people say, oh, if you're having a girl, you're going to put more, put more weight around your neck or whatever. Yeah. Like, not that, I'm, not that there's, I'm not aware <laughs> that there's any scientific evidence, but I'm sure there are, there is a lot of... Uh, Old wives' tales. Yes, old wives' tales, I suppose you're talking. Well, as to whether they're true or not, I'm not sure. It's not something that uh, I don't think anyone has you yeah, know, done well, any randomised control trials on. People love <laughs> to talk should. about it, though, don't they? I had a colleague yeah, yeah. say to me, yeah. I really think you're having a girl because they just really suck the life out of your skin. Yeah, but and then, like, you know, oh, a lot of people good. say that about boys I know. as well. <laughs> oh, you're craving this type of food. It must be a boy. Yeah. Or, yeah. One of my best friends was in a cab and the cab driver turned to her and said, she was quite heavily pregnant at this mm. stage, and he said... 
it must be a boy. You're a big, fat, pregnant woman. And that's what happens. And she's there going. People see pregnancy as a free-for-all. You're allowed to comment on your weight, on your size, you're too big, you're too small, this or that, you know. It's a free-for-all for for touching your tummy as well. Yeah, I told you, Shannon, about the woman who yelled out of her car at me when I was really, (laughs) I was nine months pregnant. I didn't know her. She just passed me by in the street and I was very, obviously very, very heavy. And she goes, you're having a girl. What did you? I had a girl. You did have a girl there. Shut up! Don't yell out of the car. Terrible manners, like a spectacle. Do the hormone levels change? This is probably an obvious question, but do the hormone levels change depending on the woman? Like some some women are really sensitive to, I don't know, a lot more. To the hormone change, yeah, 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 definitely. They definitely do. Um, so I don't think it's it's a matter of the hormone. Well, I mean, some women, you know, particularly beta-HCG, we know that some women will make uh, higher levels of that, and that tends to be the higher beta-HCG levels in the first trimester. It seems to be correlated with higher levels of nausea. Um, also, higher levels of beta-HCG in the first trimester can also interfere a little bit with the thyroid gland mm-hmm. just temporarily. So they, they can, you know, differ between women. Obviously, women who are having twins will have higher levels levels as well and maybe more susceptible to the symptoms of those hormone changes. I think though that, you know, all women are going to get huge fluctuations in their hormones. And I think there are some women uh, who are more sensitive to the changes than others are. You know, it's kind of like, you know, with your menstrual cycle and PMS, some women will have a terrible time every month and then other women won't. And I think, you know, there's no real test that you can do to say who's going to get it and who's not. I mean, not all women will get morning sickness. I think it's about 60 to 70% do, but not all women will. I think probably the best indicator, uh, I believe, is, is probably your family history. So, you know, what your, your sisters have done or what your, what your mother have done in their pregnancy. So have they been susceptible to it? And that, I think that's probably the best indicator uh, for the women who are going to be more sensitive to the hormonal changes. And is there anything you can do about that if you are a person who reacts sensitively to the hormone changes? Is there anything you can do to mitigate that or that's just how you are? Look, you, you can't change the hormones because obviously the hormones are really doing a, a vital a vital job, uh, which is unfortunate. I mean, in the non-pregnant state, yes, there is something you can do about it. But in the pregnancy state, uh, you can't. There are things that you can do to try and relieve the symptoms. Um, so, I mean, obviously there are medications that can be taken. Uh, a lot of women don't like to consider medications unless the, the situation is quite dire but you know certainly for nausea there are medications that can help out uh it's i suppose it's 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 for what I tell my patients to do is just, you know, the general principles of looking after yourself. And there is, you know, some evidence that that actually might help with some of the symptoms. So taking care of yourself, uh, not not pushing yourself uh, too far or taking on too much when you're in a state where you are, you know, being sensitive to hormonal changes, making sure that you eat well, which again can be very difficult to recommend. I mean, it's you don't really want to be having a salad or vegetables when you're feeling sick. You want to go for the chicken schnitzel. Yeah, the chicken schnitzel. <laughs> or the cheese toasty or the, the hot chips. Um, so trying to eat well, making sure you get enough sleep is very important as well. And, you know, even if you're feeling, you know, extremely fatigued, trying to do some type of physical activity um, can help a little bit with the energy levels. Another thing that, I mean, there are, you know, supplements that can help with nausea. Um, I think a lot of women will say that ginger can help um, relieve some of the symptoms of morning sickness. 
um, and uh, also I think some of the B vitamins can be helpful. Uh, another thing that can be helpful is, you know, typically um, when you are getting morning sickness or nausea, if you allow um, yourself to get hungry and, and have an empty stomach, that often makes the situation worse. So making sure that, you know, that you are, you know, eating small amounts frequently can help to control the nausea a little bit. And I have some patients who even, you know, have snacks on their bedside table. And as soon as they wake up, you know, they'll have something to eat before they get out of bed. Because often you wake up, you go, oh, I don't feel too bad. And then you get up and go, oh, wow, (laughs) there There it is. is. So having something to eat before before they get out of bed can help as well. So fortunately, there's not much that you can do to, um, control hormones because essentially they're out of our control and they are serving a very uh, important, uh, process, but there, there are things that you can do to try and control some of the symptoms. And I think most of them generally are lifestyle, uh, lifestyle changes that you can make. Okay. Oh, this is fascinating. I know, right? Um, I wish there was something that they could do. I really do. Dr. McMahon, a friend of mine has been diagnosed with Hashimoto something something. Hashimoto's thyroiditis. That's the one. <laughs> Can you explain what that's about and, and how it presents itself? Okay, so Hashimoto's uh, thyroiditis um, is a cause of an underactive thyroid or hypothyroidism. In Australia, it's probably the most common cause of an underactive thyroid and that's because um, we supplement with iodine in our food. So we fortify our foods with iodine, which which kind of removes iodine deficiency as, as the major cause of, of an underactive thyroid. So basically what it is, it's an autoimmune uh, attack on the thyroid gland uh, that really has a, a very wide range of, of presentations. Um, in, in some people, it can be a complete destruction of the thyroid gland to the point where they need thyroid hormone replacement. In other people, it can be uh, the presence of positive antibodies indicating the disease, but a thyroid gland that's still managing to function well. It is the immune system that is irritating and and attacking the thyroid. And as a result of the immune system doing that, you get antibodies that are made. Um, The antibodies are not uh, destructive antibodies. They're more just a marker of the fact that the thyroid has been irritated. And that's usually what um, we use to make the diagnosis of Hashimoto's thyroiditis is uh, evidence of of thyroid dysfunction or evidence of um, a change in the structure of the thyroid um, in the presence of positive of antibodies. Um, now Hashimoto's uh, thyroiditis is important in pregnancy um, because in pregnancy, particularly in the first trimester, uh, the mother needs uh, to increase the secretion of her thyroid hormone uh, to cover herself in pregnancy, but also initially to cover uh, the baby in the pregnancy. So, you know, in some women, the, the, the thyroid will almost double in its function. Um, so if a patient has Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is diagnosed prior to pregnancy, um, if they are on thyroxine or thyroid hormone replacement, generally their thyroid uh, hormone dose will have to go up anywhere from probably 60 to 100%. So in some cases it almost gets doubled um, in order to, to try and simulate what their thyroid should be doing uh, in the pregnant state. Um, some women will not be diagnosed prior to pregnancy and that they will be picked up with some uh, usually very mild thyroid dysfunction um, early in pregnancy. And in those women, um, we usually will replace their thyroid hormone uh, to try and get them down to normal levels uh, because there is there is some evidence that um, women with um, 
abnormal thyroid function and positive antibodies in pregnancy may have a higher risk of first trimester miscarriages. So generally by replacing the thyroid hormone and trying to get the levels within the normal range, we're hoping to, to reduce that small risk. All right. So as an endocrinologist mm-hmm. specializing in pregnancy, I imagine a lot of your a lot of the people you see have gestational diabetes. Yes. Yes. Perhaps. A lot of them. Um, could you talk us through how common that is and whether it has continued impact later on, like yeah. post-pregnancy? Sure. Look, gestational diabetes is certainly something that is becoming more common. Um, I think there there are some estimates uh, saying that. Probably about maybe one in seven women will get gestational diabetes in pregnancy, which is really very, very high. Um, This is probably due to multiple factors. Um, I think as a society, we tend to be struggling more um, with our weight. And I think that 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 is probably uh, something that is increasing the prevalence of gestational diabetes. There's also been some changes in uh, the diagnostic criteria for gestational diabetes, which is probably uh, leading to, to more diagnosis has been made um, and also uh, you know as women we, we tend to be having uh, children a little later in life than, than perhaps we did say 20 30 years ago um, and and certainly age can be a risk factor in the development of gestational diabetes so every woman who is pregnant um, will need to produce more insulin uh, in pregnancy. So there is a degree, uh, particularly as we move into the second and the third trimesters, there's a degree of insulin resistance um, that develops in all women. So everyone gets a little bit more resistant, um, but people who don't get gestational diabetes are able to make enough insulin in order to to counteract that resistance. Um, So women who aren't able to make enough will develop gestational, mostly will develop gestational diabetes. And this generally tends to happen uh, normally, um, probably between about 24 to 28 weeks, which is why we do the glucose tolerance test when we do. I remember that well. It was Mm. disgusting. Yeah. Some some women like it. Most (laughs) women don't. if a woman has particularly high risk factors, um, that glucose tolerance test uh, may be completed earlier by their obstetrician. Um, and you will find some women, you know, I have some patients who were diagnosed with um, disorders of their glucose metabolism very early in pregnancy. And then you have some women who have their glucose tolerance tests maybe completed at 16 to 18 weeks and will get a positive result. Um, so gestational diabetes is, is quite an important diagnosis to make um, because we do know that if you have gestational diabetes um, and it's not adequately controlled, then there is an increased risk of complications both for the mother and for the baby. Um, so for the mother, there's an increased risk of, of blood pressure issues in pregnancy uh, and also a particularly serious type of blood pressure issue called preeclampsia. So women with gestational diabetes are at increased risk of this. Um, for the baby, uh, there there are several complications that can result from poorly controlled gestational diabetes. Number one, um, if your sugar levels are too high uh, in pregnancy, that means the baby is getting too much sugar in general in the pregnancy. Um, what happens when you feed someone too much sugar is they get large. Um, so you can end up with a large baby. And generally a large baby baby is considered um, over four kilograms. Okay, If you have a large baby, it can change the dynamics of the delivery. So obviously larger babies have difficulty getting out. Uh, so there's an increased risk of um, emergency C-sections, obstructed labours, instrumental labours, so forceps, uh, episiotomies, etc. Babies getting obstructed on the way out getting stuck on the way out by you know 
big heads, big shoulders, big bellies. So all the kind of stuff that you don't want a mother or a baby to have to go through. Um, the next thing for the baby, if the baby gets very accustomed to having high sugar levels in pregnancy, the baby's not using the mother's insulin, the baby's making its own insulin. So if there's high sugar levels coming through, the baby doesn't have insulin resistance, the baby can be making uh, big amounts of insulin. So when the delivery uh, day uh, occurs, uh, when the baby's out, the umbilical cord gets cut, suddenly the sugar supply is gone, but the baby can have high levels of insulin hanging around. So the baby can drop its sugar level quite low. Um, um, and if that's not treated, that can potentially be very dangerous for the baby. Um, rarely, uh, there can be an increased risk of, of stillbirths associated with um, diabetes. So that's a particularly important one. It's not something that really happens often, but it certainly uh, has been known to happen. Uh, the babies also have an increased risk of um, jaundice um, when they're born as well. So a lot of serious complications that, that really can be avoided um, if gestational diabetes is adequately treated. So with most women, uh, first, um, first line of treatment for gestational diabetes is lifestyle changes. So it's going to be advice on diet, getting them to eat correctly, um, getting to them to learn more about carbohydrates, about low GI and high GI carbohydrates, what's an appropriate serving sizing of a carbohydrate, trying to, to minimise excessive weight gain in pregnancy because the more weight that they gain that's you know outside the normal realms of what is recommended, the worse the insulin resistance can get. Um, and also exercise. Uh, so you don't have to be pounding the pavements or at the gym for hours every day. You know, just doing a small amount of exercise, usually after your meals, can actually help to reduce your insulin resistance and control your sugar levels. If that fails, um, then we, we generally have a very low threshold for moving on to treatment. So whether that be insulin, which is, is generally my preference because it's 100% safe in pregnancy, or some of the oral medications, in particular metformin, uh, we can use in pregnancy as well. So generally there's a very low threshold for, for starting treatment because you know it's a finite amount of time where you have to get it right to try and optimise the outcomes for the mother and the baby. Wow. And are you more likely to develop diabetes later on if you've had it during pregnancy? Yes, that's a very good question. Um, so yes, you are. And it's quite significant, uh, the risk. So it's quoted that um, if you've had gestational diabetes, you've got a 50% chance of getting type 2 diabetes in the next 10 years. So it really is very high. And that, um, that risk really can be modified um, by uh, appropriate follow-up, having a repeat glucose tolerance test. So making sure that everything has gone back down to normal and really giving advice uh, to the woman about what lifestyle changes that she can make to try and reduce that risk. Um, also, I generally recommend that um, in my patients who've had gestational diabetes that they probably go for an annual review with their GP. And that doesn't mean having to do that full glucose tolerance test, but an annual review to check and see what their, their sugar control in their blood is like to make sure that they're not developing it. Also, if you've had gestational diabetes, you've got about a 70% chance of getting it in subsequent pregnancies. So for my patients, if they've had gestational diabetes, um, I recommend that they try and start the diet, the gestational diabetes diet from the beginning uh, so that their, their sugar levels are, are, are at least controlled in some way. Um, before they're diagnosed. Thank you, Dr. McMahon. You're welcome. Yeah, Thanks fantastic. for having me. Thank you. Well, I feel learned. How about you? I, I am going to form the Hormones Appreciation Society, Alice. <laughs> I have a lot of love and respect for hormones. For those little angry fairies running invisible. around the body, invisible fairies. <laughs> 
they, they, they really just do a chunk of work. We can't see them. We can't really thank them in person. I'm going to be honest, some of them I'm, I'm not thankful for. The ones that make you chuck in early pregnancy and the ones that make you just a heinous cow for a little while after you give up breastfeeding. But it's all part of the process. And I think it's pretty great to kind of understand better what was actually going on in my body. Amazing. Once again, wish I'd known in advance, but it's kind of cool to look back and reflect on what was actually going on when I was feeling all of these different things. Next week, we're talking about the vagina. It's the vag episode. Woohoo! Well, technically vag, pelvic area. Yeah, sounds more exciting if you say vag, though. Yeah, but it's going to be a good one. We're talking to pelvic health physiotherapist Heba Shahid, who knows a hell of a lot about the vag. Tune in.